From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. Oh yeah, here we are, rocking it for another great edition of the Automotive ADHD Show. My name is Matt West, here to talk about cars and car sounds and all sorts of good stuff. Uh, I have a fantastic show in the works for you today. Going to be talking about a lot of really cool things. But before I do that, I do want to thank all of the folks joining me on the podcast for the first time from the radio show. Uh, If you are not aware, this show can also be heard on 91.7 KLZR in Southern Colorado Saturday mornings. Um, And uh, and look, you know, there's some cool things I can do on the radio show that I can't do here on the podcast. And likewise, there's some really cool things I can do here on the podcast. I can be a little more long form and go into things a little deeper than I can on the radio show. So the best thing you could do is probably catch both shows, I would say. (laughs) No, that's that's more more of me than anyone could ask for. Uh, and uh, but that said, uh, if you are listening on the podcast and you'd like to catch the radio show, you can stream it klzr.org uh, at about ten fifteen Saturday mornings. Now that said, I got a lot of great things in the show today. We are going to go in depth into how the Russia-Ukraine crisis is affecting cars, manufacturing, sales. All of that. We're really going to break into this topic and go deep into that. But I'm also going to talk about replica cars and how some new legislation here in the U.S. is going to be really cool for replica cars. And I'm not talking about like those cheap like Ferrari replicas and stuff. No, we're, we're talking the cool stuff. Also, uh, the most expensive Toyota ever has just been sold and has set a new world record for the most expensive Japanese car in general. So I'm going to hit on all of that. Lots of good stuff to get into today. Ladies, gentlemen, Toyota KE70s. Before we touch on that stuff, uh, I want to mention traffic lights. Because we all love traffic lights, clearly, right? (laughs) No. um, So uh, researchers at Pennsylvania State University uh, have found something interesting. They have used science to quantify and discover something that we already collectively know. But they're scientists. This is what they do. They discovered that left turns suck. Yeah. And uh, now, if you're in a country that is drives on the other side of the road, I guess this would be right-hand turns. But moral of the story... Um, Uh, You know, we've all been there, right? You know, at an intersection, you know, turning left and there's no light and you're waiting for, you know, cars to pass on either side and there's never a good opening and it always sucks. And even if there's a light still, people kind of seem to forget what to do, especially if it's a yielding left turn light. Uh, So uh, what the researchers found is that limiting left turns in major cities actually keeps things moving faster. Faster and it's safer. Statistically, less left turns means less accidents with other cars, less accidents with pedestrians, and and all of the above. And I have an interesting thing to share about that. I was um, uh, at a uh, uh, right. I was turning right on a pretty big intersection uh, last week, and uh, and there was someone turning uh, left. There was no big. There was no light at this intersection, mind you. So I'm turning right. And the traffic coming across the other direction has to just wait for all the turning traffic to stop. And then they cut across the lanes and go left. Well, uh, there was a gentleman there turning um, who 
didn't there were the sun was out or something he didn't see the other cars coming uh beyond me i was in the turn lane this effectively had nothing to do with me but i just was a witness to this and he jumps out to make that left turn and gets immediately smacked by uh one of the oncoming cars uh now thankfully uh he was not hurt i stuck around and made sure he was okay and the other person was okay the police showed up i did my civic duty <laughs> At the very least. But uh, this does have me, you know, thinking about this. When I saw this uh, this study talking about left turns and, and how they're more dangerous. Now, what these researchers, getting back to that, what these researchers found is um, by preventing left turns in, again, major cities, by disallowing you from doing them, even not even with a light, because one thing they said is having a traffic light with a left turn um forces you to stop traffic in the other direction and you have to stop traffic basically all the way around and that causes congestion as well that is not a perfect solution so they found by just reducing the number of left turns at intersections instead of having one at every intersection have one every other intersection with a light uh you actually end up moving instead of also having to stop you know hitting every single red light at every intersection you have the ability to keep going traffic flows smoother and you have those uh fewer quantities of left turns you still have them so you would turn left and then you know go down the next block and maybe go back up the next way um it turns out that's actually still faster uh, which I thought it was kind of interesting. Now, this doesn't apply to really spread out cities that are really big with huge multi-lane intersections. This is more in a crowded downtown sort of um, uh, application. But still, it's a cool thing to think about. And, you know, and here's the funny thing. The lead researcher uh, was a person named uh, Vishka Gaya. I'm going to only pronounce that one once. <laughs> uh, they said, quote, we make a guess, learn from that guess, and then we make better guesses. And then they go on to say, quote, over time, we can get really close to the best answer, end quote. And uh, I interpret that. This is the funny thing about science, right? See, I interpret that as even on the highest level, these really upend professional researchers, they're just making this stuff up and hoping that it works. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? That's that's pretty much all I'm doing right here. But uh, by the way, we shouldn't tell, speaking of left turns, we shouldn't tell NASCAR drivers about this. I think they would get... They might get offended by that. I don't know if they know what a right turn is, so I worry about them if we were to give them this information. So might want to just keep that away from them. But anyway, um, let's move on to uh, talking about replica cars. There is a, um, a massive piece of legislation uh, that is going into effect. Uh, the bill actually passed back in 2015, but... It's taken this long for uh, the you know legislators to actually implement it. The, sure, the bill can pass, but that doesn't mean it's immediately going to take effect. Well, now we're starting to see the effect of this. Uh, it is the Low Volume Motor Vehicle Manufacturers Act. Yeah, and uh, basically it's a big old bill full of politics and legalese, and I skimmed through it to just kind of distill it down into the most important part. Um, which is it allows manufacturers, small manufacturers, importantly, the ability to sell complete cars and not kit cars. You've heard of kit cars. I'm sure you have at some point, even if you're not really all that into cars. And if you're not all that into cars and you're listening through my show, I, I, I want to thank you. You are committing to learning and that is that is fantastic, and uh, yeah, you definitely shouldn't take mechanical advice from me. But <laughs> I digress. Um, 
This bill was backed by SEMA, which you might recognize from the SEMA show, the big car show that happens in Las Vegas every year, which, by the way, if you didn't know, SEMA stands for Specialty Equipment Market Association. They're basically they represent all these big companies that make aftermarket parts. Uh, and um, they really were big proponents behind this bill and uh, being able to. You know, why this is important also involves understanding how things were before. If you were a small company making replicas of the Shelby Cobra, the, you know, open top 60s sports car with a big V8, I guarantee you've seen them. And every one of them you've seen is probably a replica and or kit car because there were so few of the originals in existence. Uh, and you see these things everywhere. Well, there's so few originals. Trust me, all the ones you see, if you've seen one. It's probably a kit car. Um, the problem comes from government regulation here in the U.S. that doesn't allow you as an auto manufacturer to sell a car without adequately uh, crash testing it, without passing emissions regulations, without doing a lot of uh, going through a lot of government red tape, if you will. And uh, that makes it cost prohibitive because doing all that stuff costs a ton of money and um, a lot of resources, a lot of money, and then that cost ultimately gets floated down to the consumer. So when you look at, like, say, Toyota, who makes a ton of cars, millions and millions and millions of cars, and they sell millions, uh, spending that money to go through all these regulations and, you know, government red tape, which, again, costs a ton of money, is okay, because they're making a ton of money and selling a lot of cars. What's it to them to crash test a hundred cars of one model? That's no problem. But if you are a smaller manufacturer and, uh, you know, you're making, say, 300 cars a year and they're really specialty cars, they're sports cars or they're, you know, really cool and they're still safe, but you don't have, you literally don't have the ability to go crash test a hundred of them. You, you don't. It's not a possibility. If you were to do that, you would have to, in order to float that cost of doing that, you would have to then mark the price of your actual cars being sold to customers up so far that nobody would want to buy them. No one would be able to afford to buy them. You'd get a car in the millions of dollars. That's really not a million-dollar car. So the way that uh, these manu small manufacturers get around this is they sell you an incomplete car. They sell you all of the parts and tools and the frame, the bodywork, the engine, the diff, the everything, okay? Everything. And then you assemble it yourself in your garage. That's how manufacturers like the company called Factory 5, which, by the way, they are behind a lot of the um, uh, Cobra, Shelby Cobra kit cars that you see. In fact, pretty much all of them are made by Factory 5. They also make the Factory 5 Shelby Daytona, uh, which I think is, you know, fight me. The Daytona is cooler than the Cobra. I <laughs> could fight me on that one after the show. We'll go around back. We'll duke it out. But that said, um, they, you know, will sell you an incomplete car because legally they cannot sell you the complete car. And when you build a kit car, there's red tape you as the owner have to go through to actually get it inspected, to make sure it's road legal, safe, and then to be able to register this thing that, according to the government, you just built in your garage. It doesn't matter if you actually got all the parts from a legitimate manufacturer. It's no different from you building it from scratch in your garage versus getting the parts from them. So the reason this bill is important is because it allows manufacturers that produce less than 225 cars a year to sell complete cars without needing to crash test them and while still needing to 
conform to emissions regulations, it allows, it actually paves the way through the EPA for them to actually, um, you know, get things, emissions tested and approved uh, by the uh, EPA, Environmental uh, Protection Agency, which, uh, you know what, emissions, whatever, you know, a lot of people hate them. I've never been a fan of the emissions equipment on cars, but the the fact is, um, you know, we live in a time where Dodge sells a 700 horsepower supercharged V8 muscle car and it still passes emissions. So, yeah, there you go. I mean, emissions, maybe not as terrible of a thing anymore. The equipment itself isn't robbing as much power as people probably say. Of course, are you going to make more power without it? Well, no, duh, you will. But come on, it's uh, it's not that big of a deal uh, anymore. So this is basically, it's really cool. This is going to allow manufacturers to make stuff and sell these cars. What's going to happen is you're going to see a lot more companies uh, making kit cars for not just, you know, like what Factory 5 does, old Fords, you know, Cobras and Daytonas and stuff. No, we're going to see all sorts of weird stuff. I bet there's going to be uh, even more uh, DeLoreans made, like, you know, new old DeLoreans, because uh, a lot of people are into that. Uh, and it's going to be really weird in the future. Imagine this, in 30 years, there being, you know, replica car companies. And when I say replica, I don't mean these crappy fiberglass, stupid replica fake Lamborghinis. I mean, all these cars that are made are true performance machines, especially like the ones from Factory 5. Um, in fact, they handle and drive better than perhaps the original cars there. Uh, replicas of, which is really cool. But wouldn't it be weird in 30 years <laughs> that we will have, uh, you know, these replica car companies selling like replica Supras and and RX-7s and things like that. And that that is going to be just really strange. I don't know. That's kind of terrifying, but also cool. Regardless, this is a huge win from the auto industry, the aftermarket parts industry, uh, for the enthusiasts, you and me, and for even non-enthusiasts who get to see these cool cars now rolling around on the road. That is the coolest part, driving them and seeing them in the wild. You know I love that kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, coming up in the next segment of the show, we're going to be talking about something really heavy, but it's really important. We're going to break down how the Ukrainian crisis, the war with Russia, is affecting the automotive supply chain. You really want to stick around for this. That's next. And now for how things work with an engineer. CVT Transmission. And that was How Things Work with an Engineer. For more of How Things Work, go to patreon.com slash throttlewarrior. Yeah, that is Scott's RB20-swapped Nissan 240SX on the dyno, making over 330 wheel horsepower. Something to me is always cool. That's the, uh, you know, thinking about, like, two-liter six-cylinders. You don't really hear about those much anymore, but RB20, it's not the RB26 in the, like, the Skylines, but it's a smaller displacement six-cylinder doing a ton of revs. Sounding awesome with a turbo. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, that is all uh, good. And, by the way, of course, if you want to send your car sounds into the show, get entered for a chance to win the Automotive ADHD keychain and the uh, a $25 gift certificate to your favorite parts store. Again, I want to congratulate uh, the winner for February, Arturis. By the way, I got talking to him over email uh, to get his address so I could send him the stuff. And turns out he's listening from Lithuania. Again, Arturis, I have to, I have to give you a major shout-out. That is, that is amazing. I am... 
I'm stoked. I'm honored that you're listening to this show from that far away from where I am here in the uh, continental uh, United States. That's very cool stuff. And your package is on the way shortly. There have been some post delays and stuff, but you're going to get that package, and I'll get you that tracking number uh, as soon as possible. But anyway, uh, I want to I want to break into this um, big crisis in Ukraine. A lot of things have changed in the past couple weeks. Uh, I'm not here to talk about politics or opinions. Uh, in fact, I like to think normally this show is something you can escape from the perpetual uh, political media on. You can get away from all that. Just talk cars, right, on the weekend. But this is so massive, and it does involve the automotive industry. Um, and uh, that's something, you know, I want to talk about. And obviously not barring from the fact that, you know, the auto industry is trivial to the people, uh, you know, in that part of the world right now uh, dealing with this crisis. Uh, the auto industry is probably the furthest thing from their minds right now. But um, that said, for, uh, you know, looking at what is going on is important. I'm going to try to be as middle of the road as I can be here. Um, but I will talk about some of the facts and how this is affecting some uh, manufacturers and uh, and what manufacturers are also doing in response to this. Uh, and also, interestingly, you know, it's it's curious seeing all this stuff go down because this is the first real, I would say, war that has uh, social media around and certainly the first real conflict like this in my lifetime and perhaps uh, perhaps yours as well. Um, now, that said, here in the U.S., gas prices are rising. I even noticed it this week. They are going up right at the pump. Uh, crude oil, by the way, is up from $89 a barrel at this time last month to over $115 a barrel as of recording that. Now, that said, uh, E85 ethanol appears to be, uh, thankfully, unaffected, which, uh, you know, I, I'm digging that at least. I just filled my uh, AE86 up uh, with uh, E85 uh, earlier this week, and it was 260 a gallon when premium regular gasoline was 415 a gallon. And uh, <laughs> oh man, that's that's a big difference. But the reality is that is because uh, the ethanol in that E85 is produced domestically here in the United States, and it's completely unaffected by international trade and politics and things like that because we make it stateside and we sell it and use it stateside. Um, also, earlier this week, uh, Elon Musk from Tesla, uh, actually stated something that I couldn't believe it when I saw the headline. He said that we need more oil and gas. Him of all people saying that, like he's saying that knowing it will hurt his company, uh, but he's looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective. He, for instance, uh, tweeted out here, uh, and, I, and I'm quoting him here, that he says, quote, hate to say it, but we need to increase oil and gas output immediately. Extraordinary times de demand extraordinary measures, uh, end quote. Now, he also went on to say uh, that the fact is that the renewable energies, you know, he's all about the renewable energy and stuff, right? Well, he went on to say that that is not able to respond quick enough to what's happening uh, politically, but also how these political things are affecting our lives, driving cars and, you know, doing what we do. Um, and, uh, so he says the renewable energies, while good, can't keep up with this right now, as far as they're not developed enough to immediately respond to this crisis. Uh, the best thing to do is to, uh, make more, uh, oil and gas. Now, obviously there's a lot of political reasons why you want energy independence and you want to have all that oil and you want to have all that gas. Uh, and those are perhaps a little too political for this show. But aside from that, what the auto industry is doing is 
is uh, interesting. For instance, Porsche and Volkswagen, the Volkswagen Auto Group, has had to suspend production of some of their cars because of uh, part shortages, uh, namely wiring harnesses. There's a major company called Leone in Ukraine that manufactures wiring harnesses for cars, as well as a lot of the electronic modules and stuff that go into those harnesses. And uh, those harnesses are a crucial part of the car. That's what tells all of the different computers and control units in the cars and the engine control unit and all this stuff has to communicate. You know, at this time last year, we were talking about the chip shortage. Well, you can't have any of those chips talking to each other without the wiring harnesses. So, yeah, we need the wiring harnesses and a lot of uh, man assembly lines are being shut down just because we can't get those. This company, Leone, is based in the Ukraine and that's where they make the harnesses and they export the harnesses to Germany and do other things. Well, well they just can't get those harnesses now. Um, also, virtually every single auto manufacturer, Audi, BMW, Honda, Toyota, Ford, uh, you know, uh, even Land Rover and Jag uh, have stopped sending vehicles to Russia, um, not only as sanctions on behalf of the governments where they are, but also they decided to stop selling the cars, even the ones existing in Russia. They have uh, put a hold on all of those. And uh, the uh, German Automakers Association uh, called VDA uh, says they've also uh, experienced delays assembling cars because of trade routes being blocked because of sanctions. So that's caused huge, uh, huge problems. Uh, Nissan says they're expecting production stops from parts delays. Uh, Toyota has uh, also had some other issues. And I, I know I'm going through this kind of quick, but um, they uh, had one of their assembly lines completely shut down because of a computer system hack. Yeah. And uh, now there are sources saying that that hack could involve potential Russian involvement, but that has not been confirmed. So take that uh, take that one with a grain of salt. Uh, that's being investigated. But regardless, even if it has nothing to do with this scenario, um, <laughs> you don't want that right now when you're trying to get production up because the rest of everything is shutting down. You want to get those cars produced, get them out there, get them shipped out, get them making money. Um, so that definitely isn't helping. Now, where I could tell you all about this doom and gloom, right? But where is this actually going to lead us? Now, I have a couple of predictions, and I'm also not as worried about the global effect from this uh, as perhaps some people are. Now, one thing I predict China is probably going to step up its imports to Russia, uh, namely because uh, China already sells a lot of cars uh, in Russia, these, you know, China, China specific auto manufacturers sell a lot of cars there uh, with Russian, uh, the Russian people suddenly not having cars from Europe and America and the NATO countries. I think uh, there's going to be a big push over there for them to buy Chinese cars. That's one thing. Uh, secondly, I, and why I'm not as worried here is um, companies during the pandemic got a really heavy taste of the chip shortage, okay? And they had to completely rethink their supply lines. Like I said, a year ago, you know, and even uh, back last fall, what I was talking about on this podcast was uh, how the chip shortage is changing things. And it's caused auto manufacturers to completely rethink how they manufacture cars because they don't have these chips. They're not getting parts on time. You know, for instance, Volkswagen, which was famous for its... Uh, ability to uh, have an assembly line, the just-in-time method, they called it, uh, where they would get parts that would arrive just in time from other suppliers and other areas for them to be put into the cars 
on the assembly line, thus not requiring them to have any stores of parts. And I mean, like stockpiles of parts, I should say. That's that's a better way to put that, um, you know. And so they were able to really streamline their manufacturing process. Well, they had to go back to the old way of doing it. They had to completely leave that method because of the supply issues caused by the coronavirus pandemic. So they had to completely abandon that go kind of old school with their manufacturing process, start stockpiling parts, keeping things on hand, uh, start making more things in-house at the actual factory instead of relying on third-party suppliers. Um, so anyway, the, the manufacturers, the car companies, have already pushed to make more things in-house. They're already changing their, supp uh, their supply chain to account for a lack of parts uh, because of coronavirus. Uh, so... We're going to see a, I think, a short-term hit that will be noticeable because of this, uh, you know, uh, invasion of Ukraine, right? We will see that. But I don't think this is going to have as long-term of an effect as a lot of market analysts are saying. And a lot of people I've heard are saying this is going to be really bad for the auto industry. Because, again, when you look at it, you know, all the car companies have already had to work around an even bigger supply chain issue than this, you know, sure, you've got the political ramifications of manufacturers um, not sending cars to Russia. And uh, now that said, here in the U.S., we don't get any exported cars from Russia. We don't have like, any Russian cars driving around here. I don't think I've ever seen one. Uh, in fact, there was a time when I was trying to see what it would cost to import like a $200 Russian Lada. And <laughs> it's so stupid, it's not even worth trying to import it. So... That said, we don't have those around here, so we don't get cars from them. It's not like, you know, that's as big of an issue here. But again, I think the car companies are going to already work around this. You know, the, the people who run these car companies are not sitting idly by just waiting for supply chain issues. They're being proactive because at the at the end of the day, it's their bottom line, their dollar bottom line that is on the hook and obviously they're in the business of making money so that they're going to work around this now of course i guess to wrap up my thoughts here uh you know i mean obviously um yeah like i said like i opened up this segment with you know truth be told the people at the center of this uh huge huge event that is happening are not worried <laughs> they're not worried about cars right now the ukrainian people are probably this is the last thing on their mind uh and of course my thoughts do go out to the uh, people involved uh, in that, uh, the the families and the people and everybody involved. So that said, hey, this was kind of a heavy segment for this show. I know this show's normally pretty lighthearted, but I felt like this was a really important thing to uh, get to. But I'm not going to end the show on a on a low note, you know, talking about war and stuff like that. It is a very real and serious thing. So I got one more segment for you. This is fun talking about the most expensive Toyota, most expensive Japanese car ever sold at auction uh, and if there was any ever a good time for these replica car companies to start making some cheaper replicas this is <laughs> i want one of this i'll tell you about it coming up did you know there's a rare but serious condition affecting one out of every million most are born with it and despite decades of research doctors struggle to find a cure the truth is thousands of people simply don't know what cars are for those affected, things are grim, but recent developments show promising success. New clinical trials using breakthrough audio technology have shown a 69% improvement in patients with the most severe symptoms. Treatments vary, but one day we may see a cure. More information is available at ThrottleWarrior.com. Yeah, there we go. That is a 
Alfa Romeo GT V6, owned by none other than friend of the show, Mechanic Brian, OBD1 Kenobi, and uh, that is uh, his his Alpha specifically. And uh, he was on the show last week uh, to talk about drive-by-wire throttle and all sorts of other good stuff. And also last week I did talk about um, Alpha Romeos specifically. So if, if you want to get on that, if you missed it, you got to check out the podcast. Uh, go back an episode. A lot of good stuff there. Now, of course, if you also want to send your car sounds into the show, you got to do it for a chance to win $25 gift certificate. And, and of course, I've got, hold on, I got one over here. There we go. The automotive ADHD keychain. These are, they're, they're stylish, they're cool, they're practical. Uh, and most importantly, they tell people that you have questionable tastes in podcasts. So, uh, yeah, you can definitely win one of these uh, if you send your car sound in. I do the drawing for that at the end of each month. I already got a few sounds in. Everyone is entered and ready to go. So, we got, if you haven't done it yet, you got to do it. It's all good stuff. Now, uh, one thing I want to get on here is the, um, I was telling you about this earlier. The most expensive Toyota ever is the uh, just recently sold at auction. Uh, and as you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of JDM cars. Uh, in fact, and not just JDM cars, but Toyotas. I own three of them, two A86s, one um, okay, slightly rougher than the other. They all have rust. Who am I kidding? Uh, and then I have a Toyota pickup as well. So, yeah, I'm a little bit of a Toyota fan, but what can I say? Uh, one of the most beautiful sports cars, though, ever crafted by man is the Toyota 2000 GT. It was produced from 1967 to 1971, and it was a complete sales flop, as all true classics are. They were they just they weren't appreciated in their own time. Now that said, the 2000 GT has reached huge acclaim by collectors in recent years. Uh, there were only 337 of them ever built. Well, a very special one has gone up for auction. It was the first production line model, serial number one, and it was modified by Carroll Shelby, the man himself. Um, and uh, Toyota contracted him to work his magic on it. If you don't know, Carroll Shelby is a famous, famous uh, tuner, car tuner, racing engineer, if you will, from the 1960s. Uh, I guarantee if you've uh, seen the film Ford versus Ferrari, you're pretty familiar with Carroll Shelby and what he did, what he did for Ford, what he's done for other companies. Uh, he's a big name in the automotive uh, racing world. And uh, he, uh, at the time, Toyota wanted to take one of these uh, 2000 GTs and use it as a promotional vehicle in motorsports. Cause the idea being the classic American idea, I will say, which is, you know, race on Sunday, sell on Monday, right? If you win the race on the weekend with that car, people are going to flock to the dealerships on Monday to buy that car. It's a tried and true method of marketing. And they wanted to do that with the 2000 GT. And, um, you know, this is this is an audio format, right? You know, this is you can't see the I can't show you the 2000 GT here, but you have to just look it up on Google or wherever uh, and see what I'm talking about. It's such a gorgeous car, beautiful sloped roof, long hood, classic sports car proportions. It's up there with the, the 60s Jags and Ferraris, uh, which is what Toyota was trying to compete with. Yeah. Now this uh, specific one, by the way, this specific 2000 GT uh, was sold at auction for $2.5 million. Wow. Uh, again, that not only makes it the most expensive Toyota, but the most valuable Japanese car to ever be sold at auction. 
And uh, look, you know, I am I have said on the show before, I'm never a fan of these big auction prices and people asking way too much money for these cars and causing other people to never want to sell their cars and never want to drive their cars. I'm not a fan of that. But this car, a historic example like this, built a 2000 GT, modified by Carroll Shelby, raced by Toyota. Um, that's a that has such a cool history, in my opinion. And you know, non-car enthusiasts uh, may not may not necessarily be familiar with Toyota's sports car heritage. You know, this is no Corolla or Prius. Even the production version of this car was a fast for its time uh, vehicle. It had a two-liter straight six, and uh, one of the biggest problems with this sports car uh, was that it was ahead of its time, which is something that Toyota has traditionally done in the past. It was ahead of its time. It was expensive. It was a good car. But here's the thing. Toyota was marketing this to compete with Ferrari, Lamborghini, Porsche, Jaguar, uh, all these different European brands that made sports cars and expensive sports cars. Um, you know, and the thing is the people buying these cars um, you know, want to buy them not only because they're sports cars and it's the same way today. It was no different in the sixties than it is now. The average Lamborghini buyer is not necessarily buying the car for the performance. The car's reputation is built on the performance, but they're buying the car for the reputation. Let me put it that way. That's probably the best way I can articulate that. And uh, the fact is the Toyota 2000 GT at the time just didn't have the brand recognition. And Toyota as a company didn't even have the brand recognition it even does now. I mean, Toyota was a was a new company at that time. It hadn't been around for very long. And, you know, these heavy hitters, Ferrari, Porsche, uh, Lamborghini, they've been around for a long time at that point. Not as long as they have been now, but still, they already had a you know, defined prestige to them. And these people buying the cars for the reputation were not buying the Toyotas because, oh yeah, the Toyota oh performs better. It drives better. It's faster. It's better looking, more reliable. Doesn't matter. It doesn't say Lamborghini on the hood, does it? And that's, that's the problem. And this, uh, the 2000 GT sold back in its day for 6,800 bucks. I wish I could buy one now for 6,800 bucks, but in today's money, that's a little over, well, it's close to $60,000, which again, still a stellar deal for what that is. Now, this is the same kind of phenomenon that happened, by the way, uh, with the Lexus LFA, you know, the Toyota built Lexus, quote unquote, uh, V10 supercar that came out in the early 2010s. It was technologically ahead of its time, but it was expensive. And the same problem happened with the brand recognition because, um, you know, people wanted to buy a Lamborghini. They were not buying the Lamborghini for the performance of the Lamborghini or the Ferrari for the performance. Again, the reputation is what they were buying. And yes, that reputation was built on these being fast performance cars. Um, but <laughs> that's what most people were not buying them for that. And the Lexus LFA was also kind of a sales flop. Also, it was really expensive. Sure, it was a V10 front-engine supercar so far ahead of its time. One of the first cars to use a fully uh, LCD gauge cluster. And if you've seen the old Top Gear thing, you, you know this. But the saying was that they had to go to using an LCD gauge cluster instead of one with a physical needle because the engine could rev so fast that the, a physical tachometer couldn't keep up. Yeah, you know, it, that's that kind of tech, technological innovation Toyota was known for. And yet, nobody bought these things. Also, because it took a long time for the LFA to get produced. It, it, it took, what, over 10 years for them to develop the car. It took way too long. But 
regardless, you know, uh, the, the, the 2000 GT, this specific one, uh, I'll have it linked up on the uh, Automotive ADHD Facebook page if you want to see it. It is a beautiful machine, and I can only just drool over it with my eyes because it's beautiful, and <laughs> I don't have $2.5 million to, uh, to spend on it. Now, that said, hey, I was talking about those... Uh, uh, kit car and replica car companies making really good quality replicas who can now do it legally. Someone needs to get on this. I would spend $60,000, not a trivial amount of money. I would spend that on a modern produced Toyota 2000 GT with a modern drivetrain. All the classic looks though, all the classic feel, but modern suspension, handling, drivetrain. I, I would spend good money on that. I would sell everything I have for one of those. That's how how much I think that car, at least just be- aesthetically, it's just beautiful. So, hey, there you go. Let's get it with those replica cars. <laughs> those That needs to happen. That's just, uh, that's my two cents uh, right there. But anyway, hey, I want to thank you, by the way, for uh, joining me on this edition of the show. Kind of a, uh, you know, a weird show. I was talking about some heavy stuff with Ukraine, but I think that that's really important for us to look at what's going on with the auto industry. This is a car show. Who else is talking about the auto industry right now? If I'm the only one to do it, at least you're hearing about it here first. And uh, before I wrap things up as well, I do have a special announcement joining me next week on the show. You really want to tune into next week's show. I'm going to be having a special guest. He joined me once before. He is going to be returning as well. We're going to be talking about some really cool stuff. Uh, YouTuber and engineering madman Wesley Kagan will be joining me on next week's show. But until then, you can catch me same time, same place right here and as well as on the radio, 91.7 KLZR. And I'll see you next week when I race Nikki Lauda and lose.